Thank you for your goodness and your love. We ask now that you take our service time. And once again, Lord, we just ask that you would use us to be your servants in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If you need one, wave your hand there. I believe Brother Newberger has some at the back. Let's turn once again to the little book of Jude. And uh, the more I get into the book of Jude is prepare this, the longer it looks like our study in the book of Jude is going to last. Uh, But... Uh, there is so much in this short little book, 26, I think, 25 verses, and uh, it just has so much application for you and I today. And uh, let's just read verses 1 through 4. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ, the brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called Mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. Beloved, when I gave diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as we said before, Jude wanted to write. He gave diligence. He said, I am, going, I am moved by the Holy Spirit to, uh, as we understand, the Holy Spirit directed Scripture He said, I I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation. Uh, I I really believe that Jude wanted to have one of those wonderfully encouraging, uh, telling us of the common salvation that we share, the relationship of Christian with Christian, the relationship with God, that there aren't first-rate, second-rate, third-rate Christians. Uh, I think he really wanted to... Uh, speak of all of those things, but as he thought on the relationship that we share in Christ and in common as Christians, he said, it's needful. He said, I must write you. Just writing you is not enough. I am exhorting you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith. Now that is the theme of of the book of Jude, is to earnestly contend for the faith. And there are a lot of strange and sundry ideas about how we should earnestly contend for the faith. And and, uh, we want to be careful that we... um, understand what Jude is talking about here and not what some screwball or some nutcase or somebody that needs his medications adjusted is trying to make the scripture say. And we have lots of people like that out there. I mean, you cannot make stuff up like Mr. Applewaite. Remember him in in California several years ago when 27 people wrapped their faces in uh, purple handkerchiefs and and put their heads in plastic bags and committed suicide together at the same time on the same day so that they could have entrance to the mothership that happened to be passing over earth at that time. 
And, and Mr. Applewaite, the leader of this mass suicide, was on several different types of psychiatric meds. And I mean, the guy was totally a nutcase, and yet people followed him even to their own death. You know, the world is full of deceivers. And the Bible says that we should earnestly contend for the faith once delivered unto the saints. Now, let's be careful. Uh, we are not fighting the devil for our faith. The devil, is, the devil is the enemy of our faith. The devil would like to derail you in your faith. But your faith is your weapon against the devil, whom resist steadfast in the faith. We're not contending with the devil for our faith. Look at verse 4. We're contending against certain men which crept in unawares. I can take you to churches in this city where the gospel used to be preached. Today, you'd have a tough time. And, and you know, it, it pains my heart to say things. And if the, I remember saying something about that about one church. And, and uh, there was somebody from that church in, in the audience. And man, they corrected me. And we teach the truth. And we do this. And we do that. And the simple truth of the matter is there are people who attend these false churches, but the movement is unknown to them. And you, when you become a part of a false church, it's really difficult for you to even understand that it is a false church. I mean, they're not going to put a sign up on the door the used-to-be-right Baptist church. We used to believe the truth. They're not going to put signs like that up. They're going to stand there and say, listen, our church has stood solidly on the Bible for the last how many ever years their church has been in existence. But this idea of contending for the faith, is not going out and trying to straighten out false churches. It's not going out and trying to clobber the devil with the Bible. It is earnestly and diligently working to keep the church that you're in right. The general movement of everything. Do we have any scientists here? Remember the laws of thermodynamics. Uh, energy is neither created nor destroyed, meaning that uh, you can change the form, but you're not making anything out of nothing. You have to have something there. And you can't get more out of something than you put into something. Uh, that's why you get tired walking up and down the stairs. You, you have to keep eating to keep fueling your body, to keep moving. But the other one, the second law, is the law of entropy. 
Everything moves from a state of order to a state of disorder. Okay, when we moved into this building, they had not been using the building in almost three years. There was an inch of dust on everything. I mean, it was kind of sad walking into the building and and just seeing it in that shape. Uh, But the simple truth of the matter is things do not get more organized. Only in evolution does that happen. Uh, Somebody said if the Big Bang Theory really worked, Iraq ought to be the most built up and most advanced place in the face of the earth because we've exploded more ordnance there uh, during the two Gulf Wars than in the history of mankind. So if the Big Bang really works, uh, it doesn't. Explosions lead to disorder, not to order. And it is the natural movement in your life. How many of you have ever had to diet? If you don't fight, what happens? We were talking about the kids growing and I'm still growing. Just not the same way. I mean, and it goes from order to disorder. It's not a good growth when you reach that plateau. You've got to fight to maintain. And if we as a church do not earnestly contend in our own lives for what is going on and in our own church for what is going on, there'll come a time when this church will drift away from the truth. Now that's what we don't want, amen? And the only thing that stops that, I've, I've studied churches because... Uh, just like I've studied raising children. I don't want my children to go bad. Uh, I don't want this church to go bad. And I have seen churches that at one time were right where we are. Uh, Brother Mike, I think we're going to have to knock on that nursery door there. Um, But I've seen churches that were once right where we are, preaching the truth, separated from the world, having godly music and turning their back on all those temptations to become worldly. And now they have skateboard ministries where they'll take a whole day and blare heavy metal. Oh, it's Christian rock music, but it's still heavy metal music. Uh, And have a 15-minute devotional and eight hours of skateboarding and call that ministry. Now, that's scary to me. I had a friend one time. He says, we have a paintball ministry. He said, we have 500 to 700 people show up every time we hold an event. And he said, about 250 or so are saved people and the rest are unsaved people. And he said, and we witness to them through our paintball ministry. You see, you don't get in a regular paintball game, you're allowed so many kills. He was explaining this to me. And he said, in ours, you get resurrections. You see, that preaches the gospel. And I'm sitting there going, whoa, I mean, we are, we, uh, I've heard of the elastic clause in the Constitution. I mean, I, I think we're, we're really stretching things here. But I'll tell you what, if, if we're not careful... This is the message of the book of Jude. 
to earnestly contend for the faith. There's only one faith which was once delivered unto the saints. And I'll tell you, the commentators, they just love to go through here and try to make havoc of what Jude is saying. And he is saying, listen, there is one faith that was given one time to those people that are saved, and there's nothing new, and nothing's going to change. And yet, what does everybody want to do? They're always looking for something new. Always looking for something different. They always want uh, a, a new approach to ministry. And Jude says, there's one faith. It was given one time. And that is it. If you do not have the faith that Jude is talking about here, you do not have salvation no matter how good you feel when you show up on Sunday morning. It's not about how good you feel. It's not about how wonderful everything seems to be. It's not about the number of people that show up or don't show up. It's about the faith. Faith cometh by what? Hearing and hearing by the word of God. So Jude is saying, listen, I wanted to write you about all these things. And we talked about unity last week. But true unity is based on the same faith. If we don't have the same faith, we cannot have unity. And so uh, we, we look at this and the, the book of Jude is going to move. And, and I'm just going to uh, breeze over this part. But people are going to begin and were in Jude's day attacking what salvation really is. That's what your faith for by grace are ye saved through what? Through faith. If we can change the faith of salvation, everything else is meaningless. And this is one of the reasons why you have to uh, to really get the big picture is spend a little bit of time studying church history. Because you can take up a doctrinal statement written by the Catholic Church or the Orthodox Church and they'll say that we believe in the triune God. We believe in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We believe that Jesus Christ is the very God in the flesh that he's not an imitation or a lesser part, but he is God. Now, here's the, here's the history behind that statement. Is It took what was then the combined Roman Catholic and Orthodox Church, and I don't know really what you would call that, but they were together for uh, nearly a thousand years, 900 and some odd years, and the Council of Chalcedon, you've heard me relate to, in 451 A.D. is when the quote-unquote church finally agreed on a proper understanding of Jesus Christ. And we have Protestant and Baptist preachers today going back and saying, you see there, they, they have the truth. Well, wait a minute. When did Jesus die on the cross? 33 A.D.? So it took them 400 and 19 years or whatever that would be to figure out who Jesus is? 
Does that sound like somebody who is earnestly contending for the faith? Or somebody who's been stumbling through the darkness of unbelief and finally hit on one point of truth? Do you see the difference between the two? See, by the time we get to 451 A.D., the church, quote-unquote, is so full of apostasy that even though they got it right about who God is and who God the Son is, they, they finally have the deity of Christ written out in a form that actually agrees with what the Scripture says. It is totally non-topical because they have no faith and haven't had faith in those churches for 150 years, most of them. Some of them even longer than that. You see, we live in a day where we're all supposed to get together. We're supposed to have unity in the body of Christ. Well, you know how to have unity in the body of Christ? It's what we're doing right now. The body of Christ is the local church. And so as we look at this, they're going to start changing. When we get to verse 4, they're going to turn the grace of God into lasciviousness. And we're going to deal with that in a little more detail but it's just simply defining salvation as physical, emotional, spirit, uh, physical, emotional. Uh, the word is ex- existential. That means something you can touch or perceive. That salvation is existential fulfillment. That's what turning the grace of God into lasciviousness means. Well, let's put it in the common language. If you're really saved and you really have a relationship with God, you're not going to get sick. You're going to have money in the bank. You're going to have everything you want. It's going to be a wonderful life. You say, where do they do that? TBN, turn it on. That's what every one of those preachers is going to preach. It is defining God's grace as less than a spiritual work of God in your life. It is fulfillment of your needs. The purpose-driven life is this in a nutshell. He says in his book that God has put within you certain desires, and if you keep reminding God of those desires, he'll fulfill them. Let me tell you something. That is not biblical faith. That is existentialism. It is actually Buddhism is where it comes in, where you keep repeating what you want until God makes you what you want to be. And uh, that's not the faith that was once delivered. We get down into to verse 5, and we're going to find a different approach to salvation. The people that came out of Egypt, most of those people thought that because God delivered me from Egypt... I'm saved. I'm saved because of who I am. And you can go to certain religions today and they'll tell you, my father was this and my grandfather was this and my great-grandfather was this and I'm this and I'm saved. I don't have to worry about that salvation stuff. I was born saved. And I've heard that from Orthodox and from Catholic and from Baptist and from all different people. You can't be born saved. You've got to be born again saved. Amen? Uh, the first time doesn't get you there. But there are people 
one of the great parts of the Jewish tradition of our day is I'm saved because I'm a Jew. God loves me. He has given me. uh, I have a special relationship with him. Therefore, I am saved. We get down into verses 6 and 7, and we find that people decide that no longer... Do we have to get our final arbitration of truth? God is not the standard. He has put us here for a reason. And we can make our own decisions. That's where Sodom and Gomorrah come in. You, You see, they decided what they thought was right and totally ignored God. Now, if that doesn't sound like modern day, good old U.S. of A., I don't know what does. We're going to solve our own problems. Isn't that what they said? And you see, all the uh, unemployment numbers are going down. It's just because we don't count the people that stopped looking for jobs. That's why. It's really scary stuff. But that's what happens when we decide ourselves. And you get down to verse 8 and it says, Likewise also these filthy dreamers... And we have a whole group of people today that salvation is the fulfillment of my dreams. No, it is not. God's not here to fulfill your dreams. He is here as the creator of the universe. He is here as the final arbitrator of truth. He is here as the standard of righteousness versus unrighteousness. He is here as the worker of all that needs to be done so that you can be saved. But here's how it happens. You've got to come to God, admit that you can't get there on your own, and submit to his authority and his direction in your life. That's what salvation is. And so what we want to do is we must contend for the faith in our own hearts and minds So that when the next generation comes behind us, they do not pass on a watered-down version of faith that really in truth is no faith at all. And this has happened over and over and over again in history. And so Jude is saying, listen, if you want that common salvation, you spend your whole life earnestly contending for it. Now, you're not fighting the devil. You use your faith to fight the devil. Amen? But you have to fight against certain men. That's verse 4. This is the reason for writing the book. This is the reason for saying, earnestly contend for the faith. There are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation. Ungodly men turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we, uh, I just went through and picked out two or three passages where Paul, um, there in the book of Acts, was warning different churches, different people. In fact, let's go to Acts chapter 20. Uh, This is Paul on his way back to Jerusalem. Acts chapter 20. 
And uh, Paul was stopping by. He's not going to spend any time at Ephesus. He had just spent about three years there total. And he has visited the other churches. He's now heading back to Jerusalem for what is going to be the beginning of his last missionary journey. Uh, not of his own free will, but as a prisoner of Rome, back to Rome. He was going to be imprisoned in Jerusalem. And, and he uh, knew that some of these things were uh, awaiting him. But let's go down to, to uh, verse, uh, where, where are we, 28 here. It says, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I cease not to warn every one night and day with tears. Now this is Paul's warning to the Ephesians. We have this repeated in the Galatian church, to the Galatian church. We have it repeated all through the book of Acts. In fact, if we wanted to um, take time and go through the letters that Jesus wrote to the churches at the beginning of the book of Revelation again and again, he's going to say, you have them there that hold the doctrine of Balaam. You have them there that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which I hate. He said, you're allowing Jezebel to teach in the church. And so these warnings are not new. False doctrine is not new. Expect it. Expect people. I mean, we've had some real interesting people walk through our doors over the years. Had a guy one time, and uh, he came in, and he and his wife, and, wow, we love this church. He says, we want to invite you over for dinner. And so we went over, and we weren't there about 15 minutes, and he said, now I want to show you something. And he gets out the, I can't even remember the guy's name, but it's a bunch of news clippings and books written by some guy uh, they took this picture of him in the 1950s and he had a halo of fire around his head that just appeared in the negative. And I just looked at him and I, he said, you can't retouch negatives in the 1950s. I said, brother, they've been retouching negatives since there's been such a thing. I said, you can take a needle and scratch the old glass plate and make whatever you want on that negative. Uh, we're talking about the old Civil War derogotypes. Uh, ever since there's been a way to take a picture, there's been a way to touch it up. He really believed this stuff. Show me a picture of a bus that was full of crutches that people used to use until they went to his meeting. And, and I just looked at him. I said, you know something? You get away with this stuff in Africa. And he said, what do you mean? I said, how are you going to prove or disprove anything he says 3,000 miles away, 5,000 miles away. I said, you can get away with this stuff. That's why all of them go to Africa. But you can't get away with this stuff here. That's why this, whoever he was, 
You see, if you're going to believe in a man other than the Lord Jesus Christ, you're going to believe in error. And we read this here. It says, These certain men crept in unawares. Now, I want to ask you a question. How did they get in unaware? Well, it was because they weren't earnestly contending for the faith. If you're earnestly contending for the faith, guys like this nutcase that I'm talking about, they don't stick around long because nobody will listen to them. We've had all kinds of people come through our doors, but when our members start looking at them and saying, that's not right, that's not what the Bible teaches, guess what, they're going to go somewhere else. And guess what? We want them to. Amen? Uh, Somebody said, well, you ought to keep them there and and change them and train them. No. You don't change people's hearts. God changes people's hearts. The Bible says in heretic after the second or third admonition, reject. You talk to them. If they're not willing to be a part of what's going on here, they can go be a part of something else somewhere else. This is earnestly contending for the faith. That's why we're not going to lower the standards of baptism. That's part of our faith. If you're not willing to be baptized in a church that preaches and teaches the truth, then why do you want to be a member of this church? You know, I I remember talking with a man years ago and he was... He said, I was baptized in the Seventh-day Adventist church. What's wrong with that? I said, do you know what they teach? He says, no. I said, well, let me tell you. Do you believe that? He said, absolutely not. That's a bunch of hogwash. I said, then why do you want that kind of baptism? I was baptized in that church. I said, okay. But that baptism identifies you with that doctrine you just said you don't believe. Don't you understand that? And he says, yes, I do. But I was baptized in that church. Now you see what the issue was. Was what we're going to do get, as we go down through here. We'll find out the issue was not that church. It was his pride. I'm not going to humble myself again and go get baptized again. And, and I tried to explain to him, you don't need to get baptized again. If you were baptized the right way, you wouldn't need it. But you don't have real baptism. It's fake. It's improper. And if it's not real, it doesn't count. Amen? And so as we are looking here and as we are, are studying what the Bible is teaching here, It says we have to understand that these men are going to creep in unawares. If you're not continually watching and checking and keeping the standards where God has put them, not everyone can be a member of our church. It is not a social club. We're not just looking for everybody to come who wants to walk through the doors and be a member of the church. If you want to be a member, our doors are open to everybody. Yes. But if you want to be a member of the church, you've got to believe the Bible. Amen. You've got to take responsibility. 
personally for what you believe and how you are going to walk and talk. This is what we are talking about here. You see, you can convince just a, you can convince someone to believe anything. I mean, just look at what's going on in our world today. All the crazy stuff that we've referenced tonight. If you are going to contend for the faith, and I've often used this, tried to use this illustration, is you can't fight the devil with a plastic sword. You better have some real faith. I mean, there's been many times... During World War II, we were producing so much ammunition for the guns and the rifles and the machine guns that were being used on the battlefields that there was a shortage of metal here in the United States. That's why they weren't building cars. That's why if you're a coin collector, uh, 1945, 1944, 43 uh, were all steel pennies. Because all the copper reserves we had, we were shooting at the Germans and the Japanese at that point. Uh, It's an interesting uh, part there. But what they would do to train our soldiers because of the shortage is they had adapters built into our military rifles that would allow them to fire little tiny twenty-two shells because they were very cheap and they didn't waste much ammunition and the, and the uh, bullet was made out of lead. Uh, it didn't have high velocity, so it wouldn't melt down in the barrel. But when they put you on the battlefield, they took the training guns away and gave you the real thing. Otherwise, you'd be in big trouble. If we're going to contend for the faith, we've got to watch what's going on. Now, this next phrase is one that a lot of people have problems with. It says, who were, verse 4, Jude, Jude, of the book of Jude, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation. Now, if we just read that, it almost acts like God planned for certain people to become false teachers. And you can read that into this passage if you want. But I want to challenge you if you'll take the Calvinistic glasses off so that you can see clearly what the passage is teaching. We got two things. Number one, we have God's foreknowledge. God knew what people were going to do way back before creation began. Amen? God knew the plan of every life. But I believe it's even simpler than that. You see, God talked to Cain. And he said, Cain, if you'll do right, your brother, you'll rule over your brother and you'll have authority with man and with God. And if you don't do right, He said, sin lieth at the door. There's a sacrifice there. One of Abel's lambs is right out there. Go get him. Offer your sacrifice for sin and make things right between you and God. But what did Cain do? 
Cain refused God's word. And Cain said, I'm going to settle my problem with my brother my own way. And he murdered him. You see, God's judgment hasn't changed. When you decide you're going to do your thing, your way, you have stepped into the pathway of condemnation. And it's just going to get worse and worse until you turn around and get off that pathway and get back on the way of truth. You see, there are false teachers out there who have gone down the way of condemnation and they've gotten far enough that they're never ever going to get back. How many of you ever remember the story of of uh, Joe Stalin when he was a teenager. His grandmother supposedly was a Bible-believing Baptist and read him scriptures when he was a little kid. And he tells the story, and, and I don't have it documented anywhere, but uh, he was about 12 years old, and he said, I wanted to know whether this was true or not. And so I went out into the wilderness for three days and I said, God, I'm going to give you three days to talk to me and prove that you are God. He said, God didn't answer me, therefore I know there is no God. Now this was his testimony out of his book, trying to prove that there is no God. My question is, who did Joe Stalin think he was? The God would already break his word to talk to him when he had already had a whole book called the Bible that he could look at to tell him what the truth is. See, this is what this verse means, who before of old were ordained unto this condemnation, is when you choose to move out of the path of truth, you can get yourself to a point where you're not getting back. And there's an awful lot of quote-unquote nice guys who have done really, really horrible things in the name of religion. I mean, we don't just want to dredge up names from the past, but Preachers with the name Jimmy, they, they just have a bad history in recent, the last 25 years or so. Uh, they've just got problems. I mean, I, I think of two of them. I mean, do, uh, do you think Jimmy Baker was not a nice guy? I mean, he was as nice a guy as you'd ever want to meet. I never met him personally. But you can't do, raise $120 million in a year without being a nice guy. People got to like you. But when you start down that road of untruth, it's going to bring condemnation in your life. There's not a person that does not have access to the truth. The Bible says, The grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared unto whom? All men. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust. You see, what do they do? 
They're ungodly men is the next characteristic. We'll get to what they do in just a minute. You say, well, what is a godly man? A godly man is someone who exhibits the characteristics of God in their life. Amen? What is an ungodly man? An ungodly man is someone who refuses to allow God to exhibit his characteristics in their life. Does that mean he's not religious? Oh, no. You can be extremely religious and extremely ungodly all at the same time, can you not? The issue is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here's what they do. And, and this is the root of so much false religion. Number one, they turn the grace of God into lasciviousness. Now, what is God's grace? That's his goodness. That's unmerited favor. That's what we don't deserve. That's God's love. That's God's forgiveness they turn it into a license. I've heard preachers preach that unless you really have some catastrophe happen in your life, uh, your kids go bad and go out to the world and you get divorced and you lose your family, that the devil's really not mad at you and you really weren't serving God. I'm sitting there, I think somebody's looking at an excuse for personal failures in their life. That's not what this is talking about. Turning the grace of God. I mean, you just turn on the, uh, the, the television or the radio and I mean, these guys are going, you know, you, you ought to have a new car and you ought to never be sick and you ought to have this and you ought to have that. I think it was probably Dolly Parton that summed it up the best of all. She used to sing a song that called, Heaven is just a sin away. Do you get the idea of the song? Her idea of heaven was God's idea of sin. The way the song ended was, heaven's just a sin away, I think I'm giving in. And then it faded out. That's turning the grace of God into lasciviousness. And then after you sing that song, you get up and sing Amazing Grace and talk about how good Jesus is. I mean, that's the grand old Opry way. That's turning the grace of God into lasciviousness. When we go out and we get a rock band and, and uh, they're not really good enough to sing the worldly, filthy, trashy stuff. But it's good enough for church. We'll put some Jesus words to it and the Christians will buy anything. This is what the record makers are saying. Listen. We can go through history from the first century Gnostics who had two groups in the Gnostic faith. The one group says you must deny yourself of everything. You cannot uh, enjoy food. You cannot enjoy any, any of life's pleasures in order to find God. 
And then the other group of Gnostics said, if you really want to know the truth, you must indulge yourself in every worldly licentious pleasure until you've been full, and then you can find the truth. Uh, Let me tell you something. Both of them were just as wrong as each other. You see, there's two things that they do. One is false religion puts the flesh first. Whether you deny the flesh and take things away from the flesh so you can be spiritual, or whether you come over here and indulge the flesh in every desire that the flesh develops on its own, you are still putting the flesh first. Do we see that? If I am into asceticism where I remove every pleasure from myself, what am I doing? I am worshiping my own will and my own ability to say no. Flesh first. If I come over here and I say, God saved the spirit, he really doesn't care about the body, so I can do anything I want with my body because God saved my spirit, what am I doing? Flesh first. Neither one is true. You see... When I please the flesh, when I deal with what I can hold in my hands, whether it's depriving myself or engorging myself, I am still turning the grace of God into lasciviousness. Then the second point is denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. You don't have to be an atheist to deny the Lord God. All you have to do is substitute your own ruler tradition. First commandment. Thou shalt have what? No other gods before me. Let me tell you something. You have to break that commandment before you break any of the other ones. You put yourself in the place of God. You deny him so that you may do what you want to do. And we've had all kinds of groups. The Jehovah's Witnesses were not the first group of people to deny the deity of Jesus Christ. That's been going on since the days of the apostles. We have the Jesus-only people who deny God the Father. And they say that only Jesus is God. Uh, We have all kinds of isms and schisms let me tell you, the Bible just says, listen, in, in 1 John chapter 2, you can read the verses. It's in there. If you have the Son, you have the Father. If you have the Father, you have the Son. If you don't have both, you don't have either. And what we see here is the seat of false religion. And let me tell you what makes church history such a difficult study is most false religions started inside the true church. They were people who were attending real church services where the gospel was really being preached and they begin to develop their own ideas and another group of people said, hey, we like that. And they drew them into themselves and they followed them out and started their own religion. False religion started inside the true church. And the reason it happened is because people in the church were not earnestly contending for the faith once delivered unto the saints. 
There's something for us to learn today. If I could get some of these men that were in Bible college when I was a student, that was just uh, 25 years ago or so, and I could take them from 25 years ago and what they were teaching about denying the Bible being the inerrant word of God and and lowering the standard on baptism to anybody that gets wet, as long as you are well-intentioned, that's fine, and, and to all of these things, and bring them forward to today and say, now I want you to look at the same fellowship that you were a part of, the same Bible college that you taught in, and I want you to see where it has moved today. They would be screaming and hollering and saying, I never taught that. I didn't say we should be doing those filthy, rotten things. But it was their false teaching that opened the door for all the things that are going on today to be going on. If I had a dog, I wouldn't send him to the Bible college I went to. Because if I had a dog, I'd care more about him than that. Let alone our students and the souls that God's entrusted our church with. Because they're no longer earnestly contending for the faith. They're now earnestly contending to see how worldly they can be and still call themselves Christians. This is what the book of Jude is about. I'm going to try not to move quite this slow through the rest of the book, but we've got to build the foundation here. We've got to set things up. Because this idea of earnestly contending for the faith is not chasing demons through dark hallways, is not calling up other people on the phone and and saying, you attend a bad church, we need to come over and straighten out your church. The idea of earnestly contending for the faith is you being faithful in your own personal life, in your own personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and making sure what goes on in this church every Sunday is what ought to be going on in this church every Sunday. That's earnestly contending. By the way, you can earnestly contend for the faith and pray for your preacher. I know him very well, and he needs your prayers desperately. You know why? Because I want to be the preacher that God wants me to be, and I can't be the preacher I want to be on my own. I've got to have some help. That's why we've got to pray. That's why we've got to be faithful. That's why you've got to be in the Word. That's why we've got to ask God to put within our hearts this spirit, not of nitpicking, but of being obedient to the faith that was once delivered to the saints. And all God's people said, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we ask you to do your work in our hearts and lives. We ask you to help us to love your word and to earnestly contend for the faith that you have given us. Lord, let us not allow it to be changed, not one jot or one tittle, but to earnestly contend for the truth. In your name we pray. And before we finish that prayer, we'll just take a moment of silence here. And if you need to slip out of your seat, come pray or pray right in your seat. Just a few moments and then we'll be dismissed.